Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Well, it is indeed uh, five days until Christmas, five days until we celebrate the birth of a little baby boy who, who would change the world. Five days until the greatest gift that was ever given is unwrapped as a little baby boy in a manger. Every parent knows the significance of the gift that is theirs when they're blessed with a baby. Each a little piece of the miracle of life given to us in that greatest miracle moment of all some 2,000 years ago when God himself gave his son to the world. Every parent also knows that there's a kind of pressure that comes with a birth. Sure, everyone wants to know the details, boy, girl, weight, length, how the whole birth thing went. Uh, Don't worry, guys, I'm not going to go into it. But after all those details are out of the way comes the question that every parent knows is coming and will in some way be measured by. What's his or her name? And then it's given. Now, if you ask that question, let's be really honest with ourselves for a moment. Here's what occurs in our head when we hear the name. Don't we all try to relate it to the names that we've heard before? Or, oh, oh, I love that name. If we'd had a girl, that was one of the names we were going. Or, wow, how unique a name is that? Where did that name come from? We make also some kinds, uh, sometimes of association. Oh, I had an uncle with that name. Or, we used to have a dog, but, oh, no, we maybe better not go down that road. We, we form some kind of opinion, though. He looks like a Liam or a Noah or a Jackson. She looks like an Olivia or an Emma or a Sophia. Names are the first and foremost way that we identify each other. We have last names and first names, and many of us have middle names. In some places in the world, people are addressed by their first names first and then their last names, while in other parts of the world, it's exactly the opposite. Often our last names are somehow tied to and reveal something about our heritage. Do I need to even mention that in Steinbeck? Until about 900 years ago, most people had only one name. With population increase, it became difficult to distinguish people, so surnames were added. These came from four primary sources. Your occupations, such as a cook, a baker, a mason, a chandler, a smith. Your location, your geographic area, such as wood or brook or hill or green, black and brown. Your parents, such as Richard's son or John's son or Pierre's son. And your characteristics, such as short, long, hardy, small, fast. Names are the way we, we, we try to identify somebody. Somebody has tried to resist this. Like the fellow who has, this na- has his name changed to subparagraph three. When questioned by the judge as to whether that was legal or not, the man simply referred to section 24 of the Births, Deaths, and Marriages Act, and you guessed it, subparagraph three. Outside the court, Mr. Three spoke to reporters saying, we're all nothing but statistics anyway, so I decided to make it legal. He had apparently been working, I think, in the taxation office. Officially, it has, though, become his name. And now 
three has nicknames to go with it. And my favorite, among others, such as par three, is subparagraph shortened to subpar. How would you like to be known as subpar? Here's an intriguing thing about names, though. Once you learn someone's name, they almost immediately become more to you than just a name because you start attaching other things that you learn about them to their name. They become known to you. Their name, when you hear it, has meaning to you. What pictures come to mind with names like Moses or Joshua or Elijah or Paul? This whole concept of attaching the whole person to the name, all that you are and stand for, is close to the Hebrew approach to names dating back in time to the times of the Exodus. Some of us carry family names, others the name of a friend, or perhaps a hero, or even a biblical figure. And still others bear a name that was simply liked and agreed upon by your parents. Our names say a lot about us, and as we grow, our names in a great way become part of who we are, our identity. A study of Bible names reveals much about the personality of the person bearing that name. For instance, David means beloved. He was known as a man after God's own heart. Abraham is father of a multitude. Jacob is deceiver. Isaac implies laughter. Moses means drawn out. All these people prove true to their names. Hebrew names were chosen very carefully and with particular attention to the meaning that was behind those names. So it would come to be an embodiment of the person. Jennifer and I, for instance, chose the names of our boys this way. We almost lost our first son, Matthew, several times at his birth and over the next few days of his life. Matthew means gift of God, and he is. Following complications after his birth, it didn't seem possible for God to answer our prayers for another child. But five years later, we rejoiced as he provided a brother to Matt. This time, the name choice was a no-brainer for us. We chose Zachary, Zach, because it means God has remembered. And God certainly remembered our prayers. Sometimes because of a significant change, particularly in a person's faith in God, their names were changed. Abram, Sarai, Jacob, Simon, Saul, all had a name change to reflect a change in sort of spiritual direction in their lives. Jesus, of course, is another name. We know that it was given to him at his birth by his parents and the angel's instructions. We know that it was literally translated, it means Jehovah saves or simply Savior, which exactly, of course, defined what he came to earth to be. Last week, we looked at Jesus' birth and how light came into the dark world. It wasn't the first time that darkness had descended on Israel, though. 700 years earlier was also a very dark and hard time. Into that picture walks a prophet by the name of Isaiah. He is the voice of God to his people who have given themselves over to corruption, idolatry, even child sacrifice. They oppressed the poor, perverted justice, and had made military alliances with other nations instead of trusting God. 
And God warns them that they're about to lose favor with him through the prophet Isaiah. And he calls them to recommit their lives to God and turn away from their sin. But the people had lost all sight of who they actually belonged to. They had lost all hope. They had lost all wonder of their God. And therefore, God's promise comes to be. God's promise of a descendant of King David who would reign forever seems, however, difficult to imagine at that point. Is his promised second coming too difficult for us to imagine now? Is it possible? Is it just possible that we also have lost sight of the Messiah and wonder? Is it possible that in the turmoil of health and community and church, we find ourselves having lost Christ as the center of Christmas? The world around us long ago lost sight of that. Will we join them? Will our sons and daughters, will our grandchildren? When you use a name, particularly a title name, you make a statement about the nature of the relationship you have with another person. Dad, mom, uncle, aunt. That's why names are so powerful. A title name expresses the relationship you have. You acknowledge the relational context. You state how closeness exists. In a fairly formal relationship, on the other hand, you say something like Mr. or Mrs. If it's a friend, you call them by their first name. If it's a real close friend or family, you might even have a nickname exp expressing the fact that this is a close relationship. In all the time that I, was a, uh, I knew my grandfather, that he was alive, he called me Baldy. He called me Baldy from the time I was a little kid up until the last day, the last day he took a breath. And uh, I don't know if it was prophetic or not, but I'm starting to wonder but I was always called Baldy. When a first grandchild comes along in a family, their lisping attempt at grandpa and grandma often becomes the grandparents' new ongoing title for everyone in the family to use. I'm now Papa, and Jennifer is now Nama to all. Title names can also be descriptive names that reveal a person's mission and identity. Names like officer, doctor, wife, pastor. Again, expressing the nature of a relationship you have with them. That's why names are so meaningful and powerful as God is about to show us through Isaiah. To a people who have lost their sense of closeness and awe, who are losing sight of God, Isaiah speaks of a coming wonder, the wonder of the Messiah. They are about to be subjugated under heathen kings. The remnant who still believe are about to be taken into captivity. Babylon. They need hope. A hope that their God would act on their behalf. That a savior from the line of David would indeed come and free them and rule over them in peace and justice. And this is exactly the prophecy that Isaiah makes as given to him by God. A light will come into the darkness. A new king will take the throne. And 700 plus years before Jesus is born, God in his mercy and love gives Isaiah some title names to reveal the character, the mission, and the authority of this one to come. 
Isaiah first tells us that the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This title had a deep and comforting meaning to the Israelites. It means God with us. They were about to be hauled off to a foreign land as slaves, but as they went, this title would remind them, resonate with them of another time when the nation also was held in captivity in Egypt and how God was, there, was with their forebearers as they escaped and were led eventually to the promised land. And a little later, Isaiah adds this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called. And it's like I can just sort of picture everybody hearing Isaiah just kind of leaning forward at that moment. You know, even on my computer, when I can't hear things and I'm using my earphones or whatever, I still lean forward. It's like, I, I got earphones in, what am I doing? But you still lean forward when you want to hear, right? And I can just picture everybody going, he will be called, he will be called. The next words that come out of his mouth are going to reveal the character, the mission, the true identity of the coming Messiah. And so Isaiah gives four title names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. President Bush has just published his memoirs, and in it he mentions Condoleezza Rice. Now, there's a name. Her job was to give counsel. She was a counselor to the president and senior White House staff. President Bush writes that she was, uh, she was the first staff person he talked to every morning, and often she was the last that he consulted with every night. He writes, it was such a gift to have a qualified, wonderful counselor. I thought, you know, everybody, everybody, every one of us in this chaotic, uncertain world would do well to have a wonderful counselor at our side. Someone who knows more than we know about a whole range of subjects. Someone who cares for us enough to come alongside and impart truth and knowledge to us lovingly. Someone whose counsel can keep us from making unwise choices and blowing up our lives. Someone whose perspective is so much higher than ours, whose wisdom is deeper, and whose commitment to us knows, knows no bounds. What a gift a wonderful counselor would be to each of us. Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, said, the Messiah is coming, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And sure enough, when Jesus was born, all those centuries later, and then started growing up, the Bible says that he matured in every field of knowledge. And when he began his teaching ministry, the crowds were amazed at his insight, and they doubled and tripled and quadrupled in size. He offered more insightful, trustworthy, penetrating wisdom and counsel than the world had ever heard before. And often, when he would end his discourses, people would just stand there, spellbound, mouths open, and they would say, who is this guy? Who is this man? Where did he learn this stuff? No one has ever been this wise, spoken so truly. 
And those who have studied the teachings of Jesus ever since have agreed that he's in a class all of his own. And still today, in churches the world over, people meet and discuss and compare notes with each other, and they shake their heads in wonderment at how Jesus has been a wonderful counselor to them and to their church. Make no mistake, he and his spirit has guided and prompted and led our individual lives and this church all these years. The Hebrew word translated wonderful signifies something indescribably great, something so tremendous, so amazing, so beyond our human experience or imagination that it literally defies description. It's just too wonderful. So when the scriptures refer to Jesus as a wonderful counselor, it doesn't just mean that he's good at giving advice. It means that he understands things which are beyond the ability of our finite minds to even come close to comprehending. He knows things which only God can know. He knows the ways of God. He understands God's plans and purposes. His knowledge and intelligence and wisdom and insight far exceed that of any man who ever lived. So in Jesus, we have someone who, by the virtue of, his, of all those things I've just described and his walk with us upon this earth, is undoubtedly and abundantly qualified to guide and direct our lives as our wonderful counselor. Someone who is never confused. Someone who is never mistaken. Someone who always knows exactly what to do. Someone who will never as a shepherd, lead us astray. Why does this matter? Because I wonder if we really see Jesus in this way. Not just as a baby, but as a fully competent counselor. Someone whose guidance is superior to any other. Do we really see him as someone who understands better than anyone else what life is all about? Do we believe him when he claims to be able to lead us into abundant, into abundant life? Do we go to him first for assistance in dealing with our marriage, our children, our job, our church, our health? When we need help coming to terms with illness or despair or conflict, where do we turn? Yes, we know he's the son of God, but when it comes to living our daily lives, do we really look to him for practical guidance as our wonderful counselor? Do we study his teachings? Do we follow his example? Do we go to him in prayer? Or do we look first to the advice of our friends, our family, our coworkers, a blogger, perhaps even someone we saw on a talk show once, and only as a last resort think about Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth is simply the wisest man who ever lived. Wiser than Buddha or Confucius or Gandhi or the Dalai Lama or Freud or whoever you want to bring up. Jesus Christ doesn't just reveal the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. There is no truth, no knowledge, no understanding which he does not possess. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I talked a while back to a retired pastor uh, who was in his 80s. He told me he had become a follower of Christ while he was in high school. 
I think I said something about not knowing they had high schools way back then. Um, And he said, you know, Christ has led my life for these some 70 years, and I have only one regret. The only regret I have in my life is when this wonderful counselor gave me counsel and wisdom and guidance, and I didn't follow it. That's where my regrets lie as I look back. Whenever I followed his wonderful counsel, his promptings, his guidance, his light for my life, it has taken me down a straight road that went to good places. So he said, Lauren, I know you're a lot younger than I am, even though I have more hair than you do. We exchanged a few shots. Here's my words of advice. Never take the wonderful counselor for granted. Never take the wonderful counselor for granted. Follow his counsel every day in every way you can. You know, I've never forgotten it. It's a good word to us all, isn't it? We have a wonderful counselor who wants to lead and guide us and take us down a better, straighter path. Jesus would be called the wonderful counselor. You know, at Christmas, we're all challenged to reconsider what counsel, what wisdom we're building our lives on. Who are we following? What are we banking on this Christmas season? Whose counsel are we listening to? What path are we on? Is it working? And just as importantly, maybe even more so, will it work beyond the grave? So, can we talk about the elephant in our virtual room today a little bit? Who amongst us right now, honestly, is not in need of a wonderful counselor? I can only speak for myself in this, but I feel like in this last week, I've been blindfolded and then put in a boxing ring with a heavyweight champ and taken some serious body blows. I'm hurting. How about you? I don't think anyone has escaped this. We're all hurting. It's unpleasant. It's painful. It's unsettling. It's confusing. It's disappointing. So forgive me for the way I approach things here a little bit, but I always like to eat the dessert last. So here's what I've learned not to do amidst this kind of situation, and then I'll follow it up with what I've learned to do. And by the way, all more than I'd care to admit, learn the hard way. Number one, don't ignore your hurts. The psalmist writes, I said to myself, I will watch what I do and not sin in what I say. I will hold my tongue. Have you ever said this? But as I stood there in silence, the turmoil within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. Anyone ignited a fire of words lately? Ignoring your hurts makes them worse. They fester, they get infected, and they spread when we don't deal with them. Number two, don't run from your hurts. David tried this. A number of people tried this in the Bible. Oh, that I had wings like a dove, he writes. I would fly away and rest. How quickly I would escape. This is human nature. When we face difficulty, we tend to run from it. It's not by accident that all doors in public buildings open outward. Don't fall into the oldest of traps and try to escape by playing the blame game. 
A lot of times we do that when we see what looks like a no-win situation. We'd rather say, you got me into this, than ask, how do I get through this? How can I go through this and honor God? We try to get away from our pain, but it's still there when we run from it. It's there when we come back. Nothing is solved, nothing is changed. Number three, don't meditate, which is a fancy word for worry. Don't worry, don't, don't meditate on your, heart, on your hurts. You can't control everything. Life happens. It's our response that matters to the circumstance, not the circumstance. Worry never solves problems. It never heals. Every time you rehearse or meditate upon that hurt in your mind, it gets bigger. Somebody once told me that you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I'll let you think about that one for a while. Number four, don't be resentful. It never helps, yet we do this when we get hurt. We become bitter, angry, cynical. We get all closed in and start a self-pity party. We write off people. We write off God. We write off his church. Don't do it. Bitterness hurts you far more than any hurt you will ever receive. No matter what anybody has ever done to you, there is something worse than that, and that's bitterness. Bitterness is a poison that will kill you. It will eat you up from the inside out. You're only hurting yourself with your anger. You must let go. In one of the episodes of the old, and I'm really dating things here now, so like this is black and white time. In one of the episodes, episodes of the old Amos and Andy show, Amos had tired of Andy always hitting him in the chest and asking, ain't that right, Amos? Ain't that right, Amos? One day, Amos goes to see the kingfish, another character in the story. He goes to see the kingfish. Now there's a nickname. Look, kingfish. Amos asks, showing he's got several sticks of dynamite strapped to his chest. So they're all strapped to his chest like this. And he says, look, look, kingfish, the next time Andy slaps me on the chest, he's going to blow his fool hand off. Isn't that the way resentment is? In attempting to hurt someone else back, we always, always hurt ourselves more. If none of these approaches will heal our hurt and we're adrift on a sea of uncertainty with storms assailing us, what do we do? Well, here's the pathway that God has taught me to peace and calm in the midst of a storm. Pray always and hope in the Lord. Isaiah says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness forever. You see, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. 
No matter how chaotic our world gets, no matter how crazy the circumstances in our individual lives get, no matter who disappoints you, no matter who betrays you, no matter who leaves you, no matter what the virus or the economy does to us, no matter how disappointed in temporary short-term outcomes you might be, there is one thing in this life that you can count on all day long and through the deepest night of the soul. And that is, if you're in the right relationship with God and you have faith in Jesus, he's your anchor. He's your anchor and it will not slip. It will hold. It better not be anyone or anyone else because Jesus is the only anchor that is going to hold you in the uncertainties of this world. Keep your eyes firmly fixed on him, the author and perfecter of your faith. I want to get real personal here for a moment and ask you, as someone who just cares about your life, are you absolutely sure that God alone is the anchor for your soul? I know your automatic answer, as I've asked that, will just likely be yes, but don't answer so quickly. Have your thoughts and actions proved this? Will your thoughts and actions verify that and give testimony to who you are in Christ? Are you hearing the Holy Spirit say to you, hey, God's got this. He's got this. His anchor will hold. And then number two, give it to Jesus. In the immortal world, words of Elsa, let it go. Just let it go. Don't seek revenge. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, we're told. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Don't retaliate against those who you feel have hurt you. You cannot recover from your hurt as long as you're seeking revenge. You've got to decide, are you going to get revenge or are you going to get past this? You can't do both. Let it go or you'll be frozen in your pain. That's for all the young people. There's only one way you'll ever get relief, and that's through love and forgiveness. It's the only pathway. Simply put, you've been loved and forgiven and been forgiven by God. And he wants you to love and forgive others because resentment and bitterness makes you miserable and because you're going to need more forgiveness, we all are, in the future. And then let Jesus soothe the wounds. For just as sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, we also through Christ, we, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. To all who mourn, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. Does this resonate? Do you want this? He will faithfully reward his people for their suffering. And then give him the last word. Why? Because he is the one who makes all things work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How do I know these steps will work? Because Isaiah continues in his prophetic announcement about the titles of the child who is to be born, this son who is going to be given to us. 
Not only is this coming Messiah a wonderful counselor, he is also mighty God. This is an interesting little twist of terms here because Isaiah just said, oh, it's a beautiful thing to have a loving counselor. But now don't forget, he's so much more than that. He's the sovereign, mighty, all-powerful God. He's the Alpha and Omega, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the one to who each of us will one day have to give an account for our behavior. For by him and through him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth and visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And sure enough, when Jesus was born, grew up, started his ministry, he began to demonstrate this mighty power. He calmed a raging storm instantly with a word. He fed a multitude, thousands, with five loaves and two fish, with leftovers, really? He healed the sick and opened the eyes of the blind. He helped the lame to walk. He gave life to some recently deceased people. No one had ever seen this kind of power. And to top it all off, no one before or since proved his claim to deity by walking out of his stone-cold tomb three days after he died and appearing widely to believers and non-believers alike and then ascending bodily alive to his Father in heaven. More amazing still is that the Bible teaches that that same power that brought Jesus back to life is available to us as Christ followers. Those who put their faith and trust in Jesus will be enabled by the power of Jesus to go beyond the grave into an eternity with God in heaven forever because Jesus was and is God. Because of his power, you can know for certain that he is able to do that which he has promised. Do you know that the helpless little baby in the manger was really the mighty God? Those tiny hands were the same hands that put the stars in place. The carpenter who made tables and doors while he was growing up was the same one who fashioned the world and made each of us. The holy God of justice who must punish us, must punish sin, was the very one who allowed himself to be nailed to a cross to satisfy that very demand of justice so we would escape that punishment. The Christmas story is not just a story about a baby born in extraordinary yet lowly and humble circumstances. The Christmas story is about a mighty God, mighty God taking the form of man, so that he might tell us that he loves us and point us the way to live and the way to home, the way to go home and be with him forever. He proved his identity. He proved his divinity. He proved his power. He is the mighty God, the mighty God. And Isaiah says he's also our everlasting father. Now, I don't want to belabor this point and go off on a rabbit trail too far here. I get how Jesus is mighty God. He's part of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But how can Jesus be called also everlasting Father? The answer comes in a proper understanding of the Hebrew word for Father. In this context, and, and all the Old Testament Hebrews reading this would understand it, as Isaiah says, this, they would understand that the use of the word father here means originator of, author 
off. The one who first started something. Like we would say the father of modern medicine or the father of science or the father of invention. So here in the term everlasting father, Jesus, Isaiah is meaning the father of that which is everlasting, that which is eternal, the father of eternal life granted to us by his coming death on the cross. He possesses it, possesses it. he is it. Jesus is the life giver. Not only is he present with God the father in, our, in creation, he is also the one who has made a way for us and who brings us who brings us into eternal life with God. And one who will rule over us and bless us as this fatherly ruler. He's the father of the great work of forgiveness and redemption. He's the father of eternity. There the Messiah will rule and bless forever as a father to his people, providing wisdom, guidance, comfort, strength, forgiveness, grace, and love all the characteristics and qualities of a good, good father. He provides what we need for eternal life. And our Lord does this because he cares for us. God in Christ Jesus cares enough about us to get involved in leading and directing each of our lives. And these things will be true forever unconditionally because his love will never end. He will be called everlasting father. We need a father figure, don't we? We need a father figure who's with us all the time in this life and on into eternity. We need an Emmanuel father, God with us. Now, if you're like me over the years, friends have come and gone. And I can assure you, though, that when Jesus comes into your life and becomes your friend, you have a friend who is a friend forever. He doesn't change. He doesn't grow bored or disillusioned with you. Time doesn't affect how close he is to you. There is no need for enhancement. He doesn't become uninterested in you or what's happening in your life. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is wonderful permanency in our relationship with Jesus. This child who was to come fathers the change forever in the dynamics between God and his people. If you let him into your life, if you believe in him and follow him, you're never going to be orphaned. Not in this life or throughout eternity. And there's one more name, Prince of Peace. And we're gonna unpack that more in depth in the coming weeks. But for now, let me ask you, why is it that marriages, why is it that families, why is it that partnerships, why is it that friendships, why is it that even in some church communities, there is an inordinate amount of time spent on interpersonal conflict? <clears throat> why is it that peace eludes even the privacy of our own hearts? The Bible would answer that by saying that an outside power is absolutely necessarily necessary to turn dissonance into harmony. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the single reconciling agent in the entire universe. He's the prince of peace, people. In fact, the Bible teaches that when you put your hand into the one reaching out to you from the manger and from a blood-stained cross, when you put your hand back in his hand, you are reconciled back to God in a miraculous and eternal way. This week, Another two-word phrase has come alive in my spirit from this passage. 
Two little words that changed the whole perspective of this prophecy from Isaiah. These two simple words are unto us. They changed this from a vague, impersonal account to a powerful, personal prediction of a title of a person who can be yours to own and have and be as a friend. Unto me, unto me. They take the merely theoretical and transform it into personal, practical significance to me. Unto me is given. Unto me a child is born. Two words that offer great hope and consolation. Isaiah tells us that this child, this son was born and given to us. What he is in this verse, he is in relation to us. He came for us for our benefit. He is not some far removed deity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is not just some mediocre advisor. He is our wonderful, beyond imagination, beyond all expectations counselor. He is not just some powerless idol on the shelf somewhere. He is our mighty God. He's not just interested in us. He's our everlasting father. He's not just some diversion. He's our prince of peace. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204 204- 326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.